There is nothing we should be quite so grateful for as the last line of a poem that goes, when your own heart asks, be resolved, young samurai, and tell the world what you witness here today. Do nothing but observe and survive to report. Your skills are insufficient for anything more, and your death serves no purpose. Welcome to our 10th episode explaining Legend of the Five Rings on the It's a Mimic channel. I'm Megan, and with me again is Roman. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the lore behind the rings themselves and the basics of the L5R edition system. How exciting. It's pretty exciting. I, uh, yeah. We front-loaded <laughs> all the lore for so many different things. I bet people have been chomping at the bit. It's like, how does this work? They've just been talking. Why are you talking about elements? We talk about the kami. What the fuck is that shit? (laughs) The reason it's called Legend of the Five Rings is because there are five elemental rings. That's crazy. That make up the world, the universe, and everything, right? Mm. Uh, Within every entity. Yeah. There is some bit of each of the elements, right? Is that a a witchcraft thing? uh, uh, It's like a. I'm I'm trying to think of the exact real world equivalent. Um, Shintoism. I think mm-hmm. there's like a, you know, there's a, like a little bit of all of these different elemental spirits that comprise the whatever. If I'm wrong, please feel free to correct me in the comments. The internet will. Don't worry about it. Love it. <laughs> um, but on to brass tacks. The elements are forces, as well as the building blocks of the most matter in the mortal realm. The five types of elements are air, earth, fire, water, and void. Elemental spirits, or kami, not to be confused with the uppercase K Kami, who founded Rokugan, are present in nearly anything or being. When you were listing off the elements, all I could think about was like the the last airbender. Right. That's <laughs> all, all I could think about. Well, and, and Shugenja are kind of like that. Yeah, oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Like they're not as martially capable most of the time. That's fair. But they are benders, yeah. right? They. They do things. They bend things. Yeah, they, they do. They use elements. Yeah, that's right. For example, a stone may be composed of only the earth element, while a cloud might have both air and water in its makeup. That kind of makes sense. Right. If you think science. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's a moist moisture in the air. Oh, that word. Hey, man. <laughs> so we're going to break down each of the elements individually. Air is intuition. Because no one could see the air, but everyone could feel its effects. It is all the forces that are not seen. The element of storms, subtlety, and unpredictability. Earth is passive strength, resistance, and fortitude. All life blossomed from the earth, and one day must return to it. So it was the element of healing, regeneration, and renewal. Fire is active energy. Activity, motion, action, and force. Inspiration, illumination, and clear thought. So it is mainly related with agility and intelligence. Water is strength, perception, and clarity. It is pure, and it washes away taint and deceit. The void is unlike all other elements. Void is all and nothing. The element of void is that which exists outside of and surrounding the other four elements, defining them in its absence as silence defines the musical notes it surrounds. And then there is thunder, which is not exactly an element in itself, 
though is however considered an element of heroes and power. It even has a dragon, the Dragon of Thunder, who has their own oracle, mm. much in the same way that the five elements do. So that being said, looking at these elements, and we talk about them in real life, in Elphivar, and like real existence, what one speaks to you the most? What do you feel like you're the most attuned to? Zodiac sign aside. Mm. My zodiac sign aside. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I am an earthy person. Yeah. Uh, I am typically a pretty like sturdy, level-headed human being. Unfortunately, um, we're going to get into it a little bit later, but I don't have super high willpower. Yeah. Uh, I am a, I am a slave to my vices and the things that I love. You're a weak man. Yeah. In, in terms of what I actually express, uh, I am more aligned with air, right? I have a pretty high awareness. Um, and I would say that I'm aligned very much with thunder. Mm. You know, the, the element of, of heroes. Yeah. Right? There's a lot of thunder in this man's soul. Fair. There's a lot of loud noises, I will say oh that. Oh, my God. Uh... How about you? Uh, so again, zodiac sign aside, like I am technically an air sign, but everybody who knows me knows I'm afraid of the wind and I don't like, I don't, I don't like unpredictability. And so I've always, I've always identified with earth. Always. I've had to, it's just because of the passive strength, the fortitude, and to be able to like endure longevity of pain, like is what earth like screams to me. Uh, also the element of healing, obviously, of just like taking those things and taking those strides in life and being able to like make something of them is something that Earth screams to me. I was going to say that you're very much like fire. Really? Yes. And not necessarily because like anyone who would like see you in our life would be like, you are the energy, you are the motion, you're the action, you're the force. Like those are the things that you are when you are in public. So it's almost now like, do you like, like, because I feel like we have a public facing element and we have a private facing element. Yeah. Right. And I feel like public facing, you're very much that fire. You're like the, the person that you make things happen. You put things in motion. You are constantly moving when you are in public. Right. But by that, uh, by that description, I would align a little bit more with water. Yeah. Right. So again, Constantly moving, constantly flowing, not staying in one place too long. Whereas, um, yeah, but that, but again, like the water more speaks to like the perception and the clarity of things. Yeah, fair. Not necessarily the action of things. Yeah, that's, okay, fine. I guess, uh, I guess I'm more, I have more of a fiery person. You're more of a, yeah, again, in public, yeah. like, but like behind the scenes, I do agree. Like, I, I would say, like, you more feeling with like with air. Right? I'm sorry, you don't know me when we're away from this podcast. What? We're not friends in real life. <laughs> I don't know who you are. I show up to this room, I do fucking four hours of content, and I leave. Why are you in my house? Get out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. No, it's interesting to think, because like we... Everybody associates in like in North American culture of your zodiac sign speaks to whatever fucking element you were aligned with. Yeah. I've never aligned with my element. And... I think, weirdly enough, Elphivar taught me that. <laughs> like, I, I align a lot. Like, I, I like the idea of being a water sign. Yeah. Uh, but I think that trying to look at it without that lens, yeah, I, I feel pretty grounded, rooted, sturdy as a human being. Yeah. 
Uh, it just feels kind of pretentious to be like, oh, I'm, I'm the element of the void. Like, I am the infinite potential. I am Shut the fuck. No one is the element of the void. Get the fuck out of exactly, here. Exactly, right? Like, <laughs> that, <laughs> that's just oldest child, like, narcissistic behavior right I'm, there. I am a middle is. child, so get off my ass. <laughs> I'm the youngest, so eat a dick. <laughs> that makes so much sense. If you could speak to the comedy of one inanimate object, what would that object be? I own teapot that belonged to my grandmother for as long as I can remember. Yeah. And since I was a child, I can remember going to Gran's place, she would make tea, and it would always be in this, like, silvery, probably stainless steel teapot. Yeah. And it is a modest and beautiful set. Because, you know, there was one to hold sugar, there was one to hold cream... And there was one to hold the tea itself, and it was all on a silver tray. Mm-hmm. I would want to speak to the kami that exists in that teapot. Mm. Do you think it would be like a water kami, or do you think it would be like a... Because you like put water in it, or because you warm it, do you think it would be a fire kami? Like... Again, I think it would be an earth kami, because the, the vessel itself is, is made of metal, earth. Right? Yeah, so yeah, that's fair. That's, uh, yeah, that's what I want to speak to. I, yeah. be- I bet that teapot has some lovely stories. I can imagine. How about you? So, uh, weirdly enough, I picked an item from my grandmother <laughs> as well. And that's because I was just bequeathed it. Weird, strange word, bequeath. Um, but uh, it's a copper cauldron. It's a mini copper cauldron that my grandmother... And it was weird because my dad like picked it out being like, Megan, you would love this. And I'm like, of course, I'm a witch. Of course you would love to give me a cauldron. That's phenomenal. <laughs> but it's very mini. And like when he first gave it to me, it like it smelled like her. And I can't explain that in a way. No, that makes sense. But like it, it had her scent on it. And like every, anytime, and I was so afraid to use it for so long because I was so scared to like get rid of that scent of her. And like, but every time I've used it since for other one rhyme or reason or what have you, it's always maintained its scent. So I would like. That's cool. I know. So I would love to speak to whatever calming is within that item because it still has that grounding presence to it. As, as much as you will probably hate me saying this. That is air kami behavior. Uh, yeah, and that's what I mean. Like, and Com- I'm communicating without words or visions. Yeah. Communicating through the other senses. That is air kami behavior. Yeah, one hundred percent. So like, but like, it's a it's an item that I I'm very happy that I was given. And like, it, it's when we were when this question was asked, I was like, the, the first thing that popped in my head was yeah. that item, right? Absolutely. I would want to speak to whoever owns and speaks to that item. But yeah, so as uh, we talked about the elements and what they kind of represent within the game, but obviously when it comes into being a role-playing game, these do add statistical requirements within the game. So I think we're going to start breaking down kind of like which element represents what statistic. Each of the rings is separated into a physical attribute and a mental attribute. Mm. So for fire, you have agility and intelligence. For air, you have reflexes and awareness. For water, you have strength and perception. For earth, you have stamina and willpower. Each has a physical trait and a mental trait that defines the way that the ring interacts with the world. Yeah. Right? With air, it represents how quickly a character can react to sudden stimuli, as well as a character's intuition and empathy. Air is used to determine the initiative score, and the air ring offers a small defensive boost with more flexibility. Fire is not used to derive any stats, but the fire stance is used to attack more aggressively at the cost of some defense. 
Fire is the ability to move with style and grace, along with the ability to gain new knowledges and put them to use. Fire is not used to derive any stats, but the fire stance is used to attack more aggressively at the cost of some defense. Water is a character's raw physical power and their ability to perceive the world around them using their five senses. Water is used to determine how far a character can move in combat, with the water stance being the most well-balanced. Earth represents how long a character can press their physical and mental reserves to their limits. Earth is used to determine wound ranks and recovery rate, and the Earth Ring provides a sizable defensive advantage at the cost of being unable to act. The Void Ring, which we will discuss at the end, provides something entirely unique. Yeah, well, that's fair. So we're going to only talk about, like, the, the four elements at this point. Five. For now. For now, yeah. So, like, there's fire, water, earth, and air is what we're going to talk about for now. Um, so keeping that in mind, so, again, when you're building your character, you're going to utilize these stats, much, much like you would in D&D, if you're thinking about those listeners that are used to the D20 system and, like, picking your stats, picking your, like, what you're going to add to what your background is. In L5R, these are the, the elements that you utilize to bolster your agility, your strength, your stamina, and your reflexes, and so on and so forth. Like, it, it's what builds your character numerically. Yes. Right? And so, when you take that into consideration, and speaking of what each one represents, what do you feel like is the easiest to roleplay? when you're doing a, a campaign or building a character? Fire characters, when built properly, are really easy to play. That's fair. Because you only really have to lean into one of the two. Yeah. It is unique that you will find fire-heavy characters that are both agile and intelligent. Mm-hmm. Normally, your fire-heavy character will be super agile or super intelligent. Yeah. And there are an abundance of advantages that fill them out. That's fair. So the sage advantage makes being an intelligent fire character really easy. Hmm. Because the more you juice your intelligence, your sage advantage just gives you access to every knowledge skill. And you use that high intelligence to your advantage. Mm -hmm. Like, I was going to go along the lines of, like... If I wanted to roleplay a character, and Earth, again, is the easiest one that, like, speaks to me because it's the element that I feel like I attune to the most. And that's because, like, you can play the character that has the, like, the mental prowess to withstand whatever you're talking about. Also, the physical prowess to withstand whatever you want to dish out, right? So you can be patient. You can listen. You can take the time. You can... Have a conversation with someone without being reactive, right? So you can, as a role player, you can, almost in Earth, you can sit back and watch someone do what they're doing, analyze the situation, and take the time to figure out what they're going to do, right? And I feel like that's what a lot of Earth folk do, is they are patient, caring, and just want to listen. But at the end of the day, if they need to hit you, they're going to hit you. But I feel like that would be the easiest role play, especially in a new campaign that you've never, or especially in a new system you've never played in before. I feel like Earth is an easy one to like kind of fall into because you can do it with grace. Quiet and steady. Quiet and steady, I guess is the easiest way. Whereas fire is very like forceful and upfront, right? Like they're going to be in your face. And like water is very passive and very do whatever you need to do. I will just go with the flow, right? The, the yes and element. The yes and element. They're the 
Um, and air, I feel, is very reactive, right? They're going to react to the situation and match energy. 100%. Whereas earth is very like, no, just do what you need to do. And we'll, I'll figure out what my response is in time, right? So easy to role play if you're going to. All right. So that being said, do you shy away from a specific element when building your characters? I typically don't build heavily into water. In, in a lot of the characters that I play, I don't really find that strength is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's cool doing extra damage. L5R is such a lethal system that if I'm there, I either don't want to get into combat at all or I want to be really hard to hit. Yeah. Perception is useful. Uh, normally, I will... Fuck, I can't remember the last time I played as a player in L5R. But the last time that I was a player in an L5R game, yeah. somebody else was the perception monkey. Mm-hmm. And I was there as the awareness monkey. So they made sure that we never got ambushed. And I made sure that nobody ever took advantage of us. And we played off of that interaction. Yeah. yeah. So... I, I tend to lean away from water as a attribute, yeah. or as an element, rather. How about you? Same thing, weirdly enough. Water is the one that I'm just like, I don't need this. And, the, okay, to be fair, though, when I tend to build my characters, I forget about Earth. And then I'm like, wait a minute, halfway through, like, building and, like, picking my stats, I'm like, shit, I need more Earth, or else I'm going to die. Because I feel like I just, I, I need the steadiness in my life, I guess. I don't know. But, (laughs) (laughs) and the predictability, something along those lines, trauma, trauma, trauma. But water, to your point, like strength is necessarily needed. Speed is needed. Like, like the fortitude is needed and being able to hold your ground is needed and being able to keep your mind is needed. And like, weirdly enough in the last, this campaign that we're currently playing right now, my perception is shit. (laughs) If you want me to see something, I'm not going to see it. But then I built that into my character and I made her super gullible. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm never, ever going to perceive what you're actually trying to tell my character, right? It's like, I've, I've also never really utilized water to the best of its ability, but I've definitely played with players that do use water. And it's, yeah. and that's the point, is they will play that balance on the opposite. And I think we've talked about it in the earlier episodes where L5R definitely bodes the party dynamic. 100%. But we're all really good at something. Yeah, m- more so than D&D, where it's, you know, anybody can solve any problem by themselves, but it's nice to have somebody who can do it for you. Yeah. L5R really wants you to trust the people that you're with to do their job. Mm-hmm. And... It's so refreshing knowing that I don't have to do anything and that I can't do everything. Yeah. And you have to rely on other people. Therefore, it requires conversation. And it creates an excellent dynamic centered around teamwork and roleplay. Yeah, I agree. So that being said, like, do you utilize the clan's innate affinity for certain elements? Um, or do you are you more fluid when it comes to building your characters? So, like, sorry, to explain this to those who don't know... When you're building your character, obviously the clans have very specific elemental affinities. So they get bonuses within stamina, strength, what have you. Based on whatever clan you're from, it's going to give you some kind of an affinity. So obviously in D&D, that's the same kind of thing. If you're going to pick a class or a, a race that specifically gives you some kind of a boon, you may play into that side. So the Elphivar has the same thing built in when it comes to the clans. So that then bodes the question, do you utilize that? 
I try to lean into it because it exists for a reason. Yeah. Right? There are certain characters that I will write against the grain. Mm-hmm. But I, again, I try and make them something that I sprinkle in and I don't try and make them the rule. Yeah. I am not going to make my earth heavy Hida super aware of things. <laughs> Fair. Right? <laughs> I am not going to make my air centric uh, scorpion character uh, someone who's going to rush into things and be super aggressive and be very, um, you know, contrary. Yeah. Right? Like, I, I try and lean into those elements and to, into those attributes because the characters were designed that way for a reason. Yeah. That said, there are certain ways that you can play against form and play against the grain that augment the character and make the character more interesting and exciting. But mechanically speaking... A lot of your kit is designed for the attributes that the school and the family bleed into. Yeah. Right? Well, because you're taught a specific way. I think that I've talked to the few folks that I play L5R with, like, in our group, in the sense of, like, we enjoy L5R because of how constrained and rule-ridden the world is. Yeah. Right? There is a re- rhyme and a reason to do what you do, and there are rules to do what you do. And that's what makes L5R what it is. Yeah. D&D is you can do whatever you want, have a great time, have a ham, and if the DM decides to put in a rule, that's up to the DM. But when it comes to L5R, there are very strict rules and regulations about how to conduct yourself within public, and the fact that the clans have very specific rules and, sorry, very specific uh, roles within the Empire, it makes sense as to why they have the affinities that they have, right? And you were raised that way. Yeah. It's not like your parents decided, hey, like, we are a, a warrior race. Oh, I'm sorry. You want a paintbrush? Here's a paintbrush. You never have to fight again a day in your life. No, that's not how it works. You're going to learn how to fight, but your personality in the background might be that, yeah, I like to enjoy an art show every once in a while. You know what I mean? Your daddy shot arrows. Your granddaddy shot arrows. You may shoot arrows. Did you know that your great granddaddy <laughs> also out here shooting arrows? Yeah. Most of your kids, guess what they're gonna do? Probably shoot some arrows. But like I, and to your point, I like playing my characters against the grain, and I think that's where the social aspects of your character really do play into like how you develop and build your character. Because yeah, your role might be, and like to the, to my point, like I built a, a unicorn character whose role in life is to be a battle maiden who rides a horse and kills her enemies. But she's happy as a fucking clam and wants to be friends with everyone. Yeah. So that's where the personality aspect comes in and where the background comes in and choosing your ads and disads comes in. But when it comes to choosing your affinities, I do prefer to lean towards more what my clan and what my school has given me. And then utilize everything else to build the background and the, the way I play my character. Totally. Right? But I, I think we've kind of discussed it, but, like, to the point where there's... Is there wiggle room for people to explore outside that? And, and like, there is. Yeah. And that's... It's complicated because when you first start playing the game, the easiest thing for you to do is just play true to form. Yeah, I agree. Right? Yeah. It, the first time that you try anything, you should try it as intended. Try it as designed. But the second time, the third time, the fourth time, you can start messing with the formula a little bit and adding in your own little flares and maybe I want to play a more inquisitive Hida. Maybe I want to play a more violent Phoenix, 
Yeah. You know, like there's yeah. there's so many different directions that you can take a lot of these characters because they have such well-defined roles and positions in society. Mm-hmm. And so when you know what you should be doing, it's easy enough for you to say, well, I want to do this instead. Yeah. Or I would like to do this but. Or I would like to do this and. Yeah. And I think that's a great way to play on the role-playing aspect because when you're in public as those characters and they see that you're a phoenix, they expect you to be a little bit more... In public, passive, accepting, and, like, having a conversation, they're not going to expect that you're going to run them through with a sword in the first sentence that they say to you. Right. This dude comes up to you and he starts talking shit and because he thinks he can get away with it because you're a phoenix. And you're like, nah, man, duel me right now. Yeah, like, right. wait, what? 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 No, let's, <laughs> no, let's throw hands on the street. There's a magistrate over there. We can make this legal. Let's go. <laughs> we throw hands. This is a great day to die. You trying to die? Uh, and I think that we and our group of friends and that play have tend to do that a lot, right? We know what our front-facing character should be, but we have this underlying sense of like, well, if you talk shit, you're going to find out. Yeah, talk shit, get hit. That's what's up. <laughs> Fuck around, find out, right? So um, there is wiggle room for that. But to your point, I do agree that if you're going to be playing this for your first time, play true to form so you can understand it. Because the beauty of Elphavar is the fact that there are so many rules and regulations that make you play within this smaller sandbox because you want to experience the world as it is. This is part of why I try to disincentivize people from playing not necessarily lower honor clans, but the more fringe clans for their first characters. Yeah. Because you want to play someone who adheres to the rules. You want to play somebody who is a part of the society that runs... The Empire, so that you can understand how the Empire works, mm-hmm. because you can't properly subvert it and act weird if you don't know what weird is supposed to look like. Yeah. Otherwise, you know? you're just playing D&D. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just playing D&D. <laughs> All right. So now that we've kind of talked about the elements and how they affect your characters and kind of slightly how they build them, uh, we're going to go into a bit of the combat and the mechanics of the game. Finally talking about the mechanics of the game. Fuck a D10 system. You know what? <laughs> no. The D10 system is it is crisp, it is clean, and I will live and die by that statement. I love that for you. The whole system is centered around the idea of roll and keep. Mm-hmm. So whenever you make a roll, you make a pool of dice, typically derived from a trait and a skill. You roll that entire pool of dice, and you will keep dice equal to your trait. So, as an example... Let's say you are going to be doing a investigation perception roll. You have an investigation of five, but a perception of three. You will roll eight dice, and from those eight dice, you will keep three of them. However, anytime you roll a ten, you get to explode that die. So you take that die and you put it aside. And you take another die and you roll that die and you add the result of that die to that 10. If you roll another 10, you keep rolling until you stop rolling 10s. Yeah. The rolling keep system is really cool because it allows you to turn a 5k2 into a 50. Mm-hmm. It also allows you to choose whether or not you would like to make your rolls high or make your rolls low. On one side of your pool, you may have 45. On another side of your pool, you may have 15. And let's say you want to fail on purpose, you have that opportunity. 
you can choose to make your rolls worse or better. Yeah. Another important aspect of the roll and keep system is raises. So let's say we have a target number, right? Or a, or a DC for all of our D&D folks. <laughs> an L5R, an average target number is about 15. I know I'm going to hit this 15. Yeah. So instead of just hitting this 15, let's say I want to do it with style or flair. Yeah. Let's say I have an ability or a spell that has an extra effect associated with it that demands raises. So when I call a raise, I add 5 to the target number that I am trying to hit. So a 15 becomes a 20. A 20 becomes a 25. I make my roll. If I hit the changed, elevated target number, I succeed. If I do not hit that number, I fail. It doesn't matter what the original target number was. Yeah. I fail. You've altered it. Right? Altered it forever. I, I've altered the deal. Yeah. Right? It adds a level of tension to the game. Because most of the time, we'll say, hey, I'm going to hit this. There's no benefit. There's no uh, extra incentive for me to try and overachieve. I'm just going to try and hit my number. But L5R has things in its system that makes you want to take raises and make it harder for yourself. Because the reward will be greater. Because the reward is greater. Yeah. So for those who ever played Call of Cthulhu, for example, when it comes to role-playing it's the D100 system. And it's like, you can succeed, and then depending on whether you are closer to the 100 or closer to the 1, you can ultimate succeed and, like, hard fucking fail. So there's a gradient system. So for those who play Call of Cthulhu, it's very similar. That it's kind of like a gradient system where you can increase your own target number and make things, like, a greater success. And, like, in Call of Cthulhu, there are ways to, again, alter those numbers so that, like, Say 75 is your ultimate fail or what have you. And you want to shift that so you have a, a, like a greater window. You can. And so L5R offers that same kind of grace where you can alter your own success windows to make something more amazing and more cinematic pop off. Exactly. Right? Yeah. If I wanted to cut off someone's ear yeah. as opposed to just hitting them. I would have to call raises to target the ear. Very specific point, yeah. If uh, a lot of the combat maneuvers in D&D, if they existed in L5R, would require raises to accomplish them. Yeah. Right? It's not just, I'm going to make a skill check. It's, no, no, I'm going to make my roll as normal, but it's going to be harder. Yeah. And I kind of like that about it, because you don't have to think about, oh, well, what role is associated with this? What skills do I have to augment for this? No, 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 it's the same stuff. Mm -hmm. You just make it harder. So we're going to kind of dip into combat and just like a brief sort of understanding of combat because it's one of those things that fills out the majority of the system, yeah. even though you don't engage in it very much. Mm-hmm. The initiative in combat is determined via your character level or insight rank and your reflexes. Mm-hmm. So the role is insight plus reflexes, keep reflexes. Let's say you're level one or insight rank one. You have a reflexes of three. You are rolling a four, keep three. Very straightforward. Yeah. In combat, the steps include the engage, where you select your combat stance and roll your initiative, and you must remain in that combat stance for the round. So there are five stances based on the five elements. The air stance is defense. The earth stance is full defense. The water stance is attack. The fire stance is full attack. 
the center stance is void. Yeah. Each of them offer different benefits based on those names. Both the air and the earth stances provide a defense bonus. One of them allows you to move a little bit more. One of them demands that you stand perfectly still. Yeah. The fire and water stances provide or allow you to attack and be mobile in combat. However, the water stance is a little more flexible where the fire stance demands full commitment. Mm -hmm. The center stance, you stand perfectly still for a round and do nothing. And on the following round, you sort of leverage that previous round into the effects of the next round. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of combat, you pick a stance, you roll your initiative, initiative ticks down, and then you take actions within each round. During your turn, you can take one complex action or two simple actions and any number of free actions once per round. Free actions include drawing a weapon, speaking up to five words, moving your water times five feet, pulling out a spell scroll, or dropping a weapon or item. Simple actions include activating a kata, drawing a weapon, a move action at water times 10, dismounting a horse, guarding someone, picking up a weapon or item, putting away a spell scroll, speaking more than five words, standing up from prone, or moving when crippled. Complex actions include making an attack, casting a spell, using a skill, stringing a bow, mounting a horse, or a crippled move action at water times 10. Many things that you can do within your turn, but only so many things that you can do in your turn. Yeah, it sounds like you can do a lot, but when you actually get into the nitty gritty of it, especially when you have to choose a stance that gives and or takes away from those options, it can, I feel like you can, I feel like everybody is spoiled with D&D because you are given action after action after like whatever you can do. Like there are characters and players that can make 1700 actions in a turn. Elfhaver is very limiting when you compare it between one and the other. If you don't focus on it correctly. I like to think of it as being deliberate. Yeah, no, that's fair. Deliberate is a good word. Um, and I, I think that's just the main difference. Is that you have to be more constructive with your thoughts. You're not just going to get three attack actions per turn because you're a fucking barbarian who's enraged. You know what I mean? Like... You have to be strategic with every round, almost. For context, at rank 3, which is probably about level 10 yeah. in D&D, mm. some classes get the ability to attack as a free action. Yeah. So you can attack twice in a round, and that's all you do. Yeah. There Congratulations. Are, <laughs> there, there are some classes that get it at rank 4, which is the equivalent of, like, 15. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it, it really puts things in perspective when you look at it that way. Like, the game is inherently slower. It is more lethal. It is, again, more deliberate. Tactical. Tactical. Very tactical. It is a tactical game. Yeah. We've been talking about attack rolls a lot. How do you make an attack? Mm-hmm. Right? So you take your weapon skill and the agility trait. You mash those together and you roll them. You're trying to hit a target number of your opponent's armor target number. Basically their AC. <laughs> Very simple. Yeah. <laughs> right? It is determined by reflexes times five, plus five, plus whatever their armor gives them. Yeah. So if your armor gives you three and you have a reflexes of three, you're going to be trying to hit a 23. Simple math. Very straightforward. The numbers are... L- 
they feel high, but because you're rolling so many dice and because you have so many additive effects, yeah. you're hitting those numbers consistently. Because your tens explode, you're hitting those numbers consistently. Yeah. Afterwards, there is a damage roll, which is determined by the weapon, and it's typically weapon damage value plus strength. A katana, which is the basic weapon of most bushi, is a three keep two. So if I have a strength of two and I am wielding a katana, I'm rolling a five keep two. Simple. Yeah. Straightforward. Yep. No, makes sense. So we talked all about like the mechanics of, of battle, which is essentially like starting your initiative, choosing your stance, and then choosing your actions based on whatever stance you're in. Because you said each stance does either whether you are defending, attacking, like meditating, whatever you want to do. Any tips on how you choose what stance you're in? It is entirely dependent on what school you are playing. Yeah. And on the circumstances of the combat. Yeah. Sometimes you want to in, enter in your first round of combat in air. If you are a spellcaster, you never need to be in the attack stance because you can cast spells from the defense stance. From a distance. From a distance with no headache. And yeah. you just get a free little defense buff for doing it. Yep. If you are a bushi and you have distance to cover... Attacking in full attack gives you extra movement and it makes it easier for you to hit. Yeah. It costs you armor TN to do it, but sky's the limit. Mm -hmm. You have to look at the combat situation and look at your role in combat. Yeah. And use that to determine what stance you should be using. Yeah. And I, I always determine, do I need to move? Do I not need to move? Yeah. Is always what it is. And if at any point in my combat do I have to move, I will then choose like water. Or something, just so I can move. Yeah. Right? Even if you want to attack and move, if you have to move, there are only very specific stances that allow you to move. I use fire on turns where I need to set a tone. Yeah. So if it is a turn where, okay, I am, I can engage appropriately on this round. I can make a simple move or a free move and then attack. Yeah. I will choose fire because I will take those extra dice worth of bonus and hopefully I will cripple my opponent badly enough where they can't attack me back. Yeah. Right? If I am unsure or I'm trying to play more defensively, I'll pick water or air. Yeah. If I am trying to stall for time, I will sit there and earth. Yeah. And like, there's only been a few times where I've stood in full defense and like it's only ever been... Very, I think that's the beauty of the battle system is that it's very specific to what's happening in your surroundings at the time, right? So that being said, what makes you like this battle system more or less um, than other role-playing games you've played? I like that it is more stripped down. Yeah. It doesn't demand a lot of you. It's, where is my character? What's the one thing that I'm going to do this round? What's my intention? What am I trying to do? Do my rank techniques affect it? Do I have any Kata or Kiho active? Can I can I do the thing? Okay, I do the thing. Is it, Do I want to use a combat maneuver? I'm going to use a combat maneuver. Yeah. It's very cut and dry, and you only do a thing or two every round. I don't have to think about, well, because I'm wielding a lance, and I'm at this range, and there's four guys in front of me, none of these guys can move into me. If they move past me, I get attacks against all of them. Oh, but I've already used my bonus action. Like, there's, there's so many things to think about all at once. Yeah. And, like, I feel like... So I rag on the D10 system and how this system works versus D&D &D a lot. 
But I think the thing that I enjoy about it the most is it is very rare that I will get to my turn in combat and my plan has changed. Yep. So, and those who have played D&D will understand this in the sense where, like, you'll plan out a, 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 a process of how you want to play out your role. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this spell, and I'm going to do this attack, and I'm going to do this, I'm going to move here, I'm going to do this. Then your players do their shit, and your whole plan has to change. Because this guy died, this happened, this guy popped off a spell over here with an AoE effect that I can no longer stand in. And, like, it's frustrating in D&D combat when you can only plan so much and then the DM gets frustrated because then they're sitting there like, why are you taking so long to pick your turn? It's because the whole fucking battlefield changed in six fucking seconds. What do you want me to do? Whereas I feel like L5R does uh, give you that opportunity to take the time and everyone is taking that time to be more strategic and tactical with their movements. So it's very rare that it'll get to my turn and my plan has changed. Yeah. And like that, I feel, is the only thing I will give the D10 system. One of the things that I wish L5R did a little bit better was make combat feel a little bit more unique. Yeah. From school to school. Because most of the times it's, oh, because I'm wielding this, I I get a little bonus. Or because I'm doing this, I get a little bonus. There aren't as many unique effects. Like, uh, the Paladin Smite does not exist in L5R. Or the Ranger's Animal Companion. It is a very niche thing that exists with maybe one school in L5R. The cool things that a lot of D&D classes can do and the ways that they can interact with combat is completely stripped away in L5R. Mm -hmm. For the most part, some of the coolest stuff that you get to do is like sneak attack in D&D. Yeah. And while I'm willing to accept it for a little bit of ease of access, it doesn't always make combat the most exciting, which is part of why I don't run it a ton. Yeah, that's true. And again, it can get overly complicated when it comes to how much there is available for D&D players, right? Whereas Elphavar is very simple and specific, and every character has the same access to the same skills. Yeah. It's just whether or not you d- delve into it or not, right? I think it's the difference. So, some fun stuff. So, what is the most entertaining battle you've ever entered, and what made it fun? The most entertaining battle that I've ever entered, or the most entertaining battle that I've ever run? Sure. Okay. So, one of the more entertaining battles that I was thrown into as a player was there was a character, uh, she, she was like a shrine maiden that we were trying to save, and we were under the assumption that she was a blood speaker. And so she was on one side of the, the field and we were on the other side and we had to try and make our way towards her while fighting against zombies and other stuff and try and talk her down from being this this blood wizard. Well, it turns out that she was unconscious and being marionetted by the actual blood speaker. Mm-hmm. And so we had to make rolls to try and figure out, hey, is this person... Like, this person's moving kind of weird. Is this actually the person that we're fighting against? What else is going on here? The most exciting combat that I've run, in, like, the traditional combat sense, was uh, a group of um, kind of, like, rangers. Effectively, like, L5R rangers. So, them and their animal companions all working their way through a forest trying to hunt something down, but also being hunted at the same time. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found that to be really, really cool in like a, you know, how can we be stealthy, but also um, hunt down our quarry. Yeah. Right. 
Now, they say using the aspect of like your environment when it comes to L5R is very big. So, like, one of the most entertaining battles we've ever done for myself was when we did like the uh, the naval battle. Yeah. And like being on the ships and what that word looked like. Because we had to, for players that didn't necessarily fight, maintained the ship. Yeah. Right? Like, and I feel like that was a little bit of a homebrew, a little bit of a mix of like us actually playing out like the actual proper L5R rules of battle. Because some of us could fight, some of us couldn't. So you were able to balance that with skill checks or like, well, if you can't fight, well, then on the ship, you're going to want to repair this or do that or what have you. And I thought that was very interactive and at least very people, again, who could not fight could actually engage in the battle and weren't just sitting behind like your Shugenjas who or not your Shugenjas, but like your courtiers that were going to like go toe to toe or sword to sword with a pirate are going to be like, okay, well, no, I'll like plug this porthole so it doesn't like flood the ship and we'll be fine yeah right like there was things that you could do and i do dnd does bode for that as well when you talk about like naval battles or force battles or like chases and like there's rules for that in a lot of systems um but i find that because l5r is very specific to certain skills and because you can roll anything and be somewhat good and or terrible at things it still keeps you engaged as a player well, and, and to touch on that as well, because D&D is a system where everyone can fight, Yeah, it is a system designed around combat. Yes. L5R is a system that has combat. Yeah. L5R doesn't care if you show up to combat and you don't have a single weapon skill on your sheet. Yeah. Go figure out what you're going to do. Yep. So in situations where there are a bunch of people fighting and there's a bunch of other things that need to be dealt with, when people need to be sorted and when orders need to be barked, your non-combative characters get to shine in those moments just as much as your combative characters do. Yeah. Which in L5R, sorry, in, in D&D, your non-combative characters still probably carry weapons on them. Yeah. Still probably have a, a couple attacking actions on them. Your singing bard can fight. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like your wizard is never defenseless. <laughs> no, and that's the thing is no one is defenseless in D&D. Whereas in L5R, there are many people that are technically defenseless. Can they wield a katana because they're a samurai? Sure. But is that what they're good at? Absolutely not. And are they going to utilize that their first skill to defend themselves? No. They're going to use their speaking skills they're going to use their like determination they're going to use their mind they're going to use their puzzle solving skills they're going to be your project managers you know what i mean <laughs> like it's just like it, and i think that the, the most interesting battles that i've had with an alpha bar have been able to utilize all the different aspects of the clan and characters that you are playing with and that's hard to do as a gm to be able to utilize that. And I learned that when I did my campaign with my group that came straight from D&D that were expecting like, if we go into battle, we go into battle. And I had a couple of players that were like, well, when we go to battle, what do I do? I'm like, don't worry about it. I'll give you something, right? Like, because L5R forces that mental capacity that you have to be able to figure out what to do when you cannot wield a sword. Yeah. Right? So. <laughs> Anyways, we've talked a lot about the four elements and we did say we were going to talk a little bit about the fifth element, which we consider to be void and what void points are within the game. Yeah. The uh, the elusive fifth element in the room. The void. The void. <laughs> While the most ethereal of the elements, it also holds the most potential for power. Void is at once both everywhere and every when. Unlike the other elements, void does not have separate stats, but it provides void points. 
Now, void points are potentially my favorite part of the L5R system mm -hmm. in that it is a one-to-one -one exchange with your void trait. So if I have four void, I have four void points. They can be spent to give a 1k1 to any skill, trait, spell, or ring roll. To temporarily gain a skill for which you are unskilled. To give a 1k1 on a damage roll with a katana. To reduce damage by 10 points. At the start of the combat round, to increase your armor target number by 10. At the start of a combat round, to increase your initiative by 10. Or at the start of a combat round, to switch initiative with a willing target for the remainder of the skirmish. So much flexibility. Yeah, and like, to to bow to our D&D &D players and other role play, this is your inspiration. Is what Void is, right? It's your inspiration dice, it's your extra like additive to make something pop off if you want to make it pop off. Is the easiest way to describe it. There's more to it, obviously, when you like dig deep into the options and opportunities that you have that void points can give you. But that's a brass tax. It's inspiration, right? But every character gets it. They start with a pool of it. Yes. Because all of your stats start at two. Yeah. And then depending if you decide to level up your void ring, because it's a ring. It's one of the five rings. Correct. So you can level it up as much as you want. It's more expensive to level it up. Yep. But you can. And then that gives you more void points within your gameplay. So you can utilize it more often than other players if you want to. Again, speaking to it as it's like almost like an inspiration where your characters can do things that they wouldn't normally do well, do them extremely well. Do you feel as a GM, would you deplete this on purpose? Oh, I do all the time. On a regular basis. I try to make sure <laughs> that I put you in positions where, oh man, this is looking kind of tough. I should probably spend a void point on this all the time. It's extra hard. You might want to do that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, this is looking pretty rough. Like, oh, you don't normally do this. Do you want to spend a void point? Like, cause, cause that's what they're there for. There's so many ways of recovering them Yeah. beyond just, oh, I take a nap, wake up the next day and I get all my void points back. Like you can have a tea ceremony. Yeah. Which recovers void points. Oh my God. I gave, can, I gave Adam a tea ceremony and he died. You can meditate <laughs> and it recovers void points. Like there's so many ways to get them back. Yeah, that's right. If you engage with the way that the world works. Yeah. And like, fuck it. I'm taking your void points. Yeah. And that's the thing. Is like, as, as players in D&D, you constantly want to take away a big bad's legendary actions. It's the same shit in my mind. It's yeah. like you want to do things so egregious and expansive that it requires extra for them to like reap from the pool of awesomeness, right? Because again, you can utilize a void point to make yourself skilled in something you were not skilled in before. I have never folded a paper crane before, but this void point says that I can. Today, I'm going to do it great. Tomorrow, probably not so much, but today it's going to be great. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, what is the most common use of void points that you've seen? Uh, it depends on the game. Yeah. In combat heavy games, I negate the first 10 wounds. Yeah. Oh, void man. it down is I'm, what I always hear. Yeah. I'm going to hit you. You hear me roll a bunch of dice. Yeah. I void it down. I void it down. <laughs> uh, in less combat heavy games, uh, the, the 1k1 is super strong. Yeah. Uh, if you're ever caught with your pants down, yeah, give me the 1KO on this thing that I've never done before. Like, 
I don't really find that people swap initiative order often in combat unless it is here's this courtier who's rolled like a god and is going to be acting first in combat Mm -hmm. and there's the super heavy hitter who rolled like dirt because they didn't invest in air. Hey, I spend a void point and I swap with Buddy and then Buddy goes and bashes the bad guy in the head. Yeah, and I think that's a a great moment to say to anyone who's deciding to GM Elpevar for the first time, initiative order changes constantly. Yep. It's not like D&D where you set your initiative order and then you go. No. In L5R, it is constantly shifting. It is constantly moving. I got myself a whiteboard and that is what I did to try and figure out how to make sure I maintained where people were in the initiative order. A cool thing that I saw is on the GM screen, mm-hmm. you get little uh, pieces of paper that you fold over and you put them along your GM screen and then you have one point of your GM screen, which is top of the initiative. Yeah. And then when people move, you cycle, you shift them shift around them. on top of that border. And it's really cool. Unfortunately, because L5R is very numbersy in its initiative, it's not just, okay, well, you're here or you're next or you're, you kind of need to know, is this a 24 or is this a 27 compared to this 30? Yeah, because like some characters will be like, and to the point, like the last campaign and game that we played in, the character that we have in our game specifically gave (sighs) at the top of the round an extra five or an extra whatever to whatever character he chose during his turn which meant it changed the initiative order for the next round. So you had to know, okay, well, I'm a 34, which means I'm going to be a 39 for the next round, which means I'm ahead of this person, but not ahead of this person. But I have to remember because next round, I'm going to lose that five because you're going to move it to someone else. Yeah, I pick this person to gain 12 initiative. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, I was a 28. Now I'm acting on 40. Like... Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it, it, and it, like, I think that's the only biggest learning curve I had going into like DMing for L5R was that like the, the initiative is fucked. And void points again can manipulate that. And like the, the bookkeeping isn't impossible. No. It's just something that you need to accept. It's a learning curve. Right? And it's like, a, how am I going to track this better? So people just do it pencil and paper. I used a whiteboard for mine. I only had a little, like, I think it was uh, Mieka from our, our podcast uh, actually like had like a little easel. That yeah. I had out that I wrote everybody's name on and what their number was. Well, I've been thinking of making cards. Yeah. So, you know, at the bottom of it, there would be a space where I could write a number. Yeah. And then you just stack the cards in order and then add in cards for dorks. Uh, and so I imagine that all this might feel really confusing and, and complex for people. I have put together a cheat sheet mm-hmm. that I give to all of my players and that I find really interesting. Uh, for those of you who are interested... Uh, I'm sure that we could make it accessible so that people could look at it and actually visualize some of that information. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if there's a place where we could can throw it up where folks will have access to it, but I'm I, I mean, happy we, to make that resource available. We could definitely give the resource to like our Patreons or something around those lines, but it's very, it is helpful because I used it when I ran my first, and it was helpful to me when I ran my first campaign of L5R because sometimes like combat is not easy to run if it's your first time doing it yeah and i don't get me wrong with every role-playing game on the planet that's the same concept like it's not easy to learn a new system and then learn how to do it and then learn everyone's roles within the battle system as well right like with a D, you're gonna have a wizard you're gonna have a fighter you're gonna have a barbarian you're gonna have all these things same thing with Thalvivar. you're gonna have a courtier who's gonna not want to fight you're gonna have a 
Uh, Shugenja, who's going to take seven rounds to pop off a spell if they don't know how to do it effectively. You're going to have, like, the, again, you're going to have the Bushi that choose the wrong stance and can't move, right? You're going to have these things that happen that you're going to have to be able to navigate. And that sheet, weirdly enough, was the easiest thing to help my players utilize. So, yeah, if people have an interest, let us know, and we'll see if we can find a way to get it to our Patreons at least. Um... But it's a great resource to use. And I'm sure there's many resources out there. This is one specific to 4th edition. Yes, this is specific to the 4th edition. And this is specific to combat within the 4th edition. Yes. Yeah, very specific to combat. Like, again, like this whole episode we talked about, it's about stances, how stances work. It's about void points, how void points work. Um, simple and complex actions, which ones fall within each. It's kind of all in a one-shot cheat sheet, which is very useful. It also includes an optional rule for something that I like to call karma, but we will discuss that later on when we go into the homebrew episodes. How exciting. Well, with that, so that's all for today's episode in this series on Ledge of the Five Rings. Make sure to like and comment with which element speaks to you, as Roman and I popped off to earlier. Uh, don't forget to follow or subscribe, because next episode we will be exploring the spells and the kami themselves, and that's with a lower K. When you're resolved from the beginning, you will not be perplexed. This understanding extends to everything. Be resolved, young samurai, and tell the world what you have witnessed here today.